eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome, welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. Explore the mind of MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone. As he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Now, Now, up to to bat, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I'm joined by one of the most versatile broadcasters in America today. It's called MLB, NFL, college football, basketball, golf, tennis, and did just say he did it in the 92 and 94 Olympics. He called Luge. Uh, he's currently <laughs> doing play-by-play for the Boston Red Sox. Ladies and gentlemen, Sean McDonough. Sean, thanks for coming on the program. Hey, my pleasure, my friend. It's great to see you, and uh, thanks for having me on. You mentioned you knew you were going to do this. You wanted to do this since five years old, and and we're going to get to dad in a second. But you went to Syracuse. I went to USC. I went to USC not to study. I went to USC, and I went to my counselor, and I said, what what do I need to take and what do I need to to have to stay eligible to be on the field because I'm here to play baseball and I'm going to go play in the big leagues for 15 years and that's just the way it's going to be. That was truly how I thought, John. Mm -hmm. I had no idea what was about to hit me at the highest level. And believe me, I had my share of humble pie. I got my butt knocked down and uh, it it was the best thing for me because I learned. I grew up, I grew as a person, but I grew as a big leaguer. And, and, uh, you know, I watch young players today and I do that. For you, you went to Syracuse, you graduate, 1985, you're calling games for the Red Sox, your office is Fenway Park. Is that how you envision it? Because I knew when I was in the big leagues, I got there for the first day, I thought, of course I'm here. This is part of the plan. This is what I've been telling you for years. Naive, but it was really how my brain thought. When you were there in 85, got that gig, did you look around and go, well, I know I wanted to do this. This is pretty cool. Yeah, exactly right. You know, when I got there in 85, I was still doing kind of like the pregame, postgame, on the field, postgame interview. And then in 88, uh, when I got named the TV play-by-play announcer, that's when I had that moment. I, I mean, I can still picture it. They were, I was at Fenway Park on opening day. 
you know, they have all the bunting and all the stuff that comes with opening day. They were playing the Detroit Tigers when they had Alan Trammell and those guys. And um, I remember sitting in the broadcast booth, you know, this is something I had been dreaming of since I was five or six years old. When I, like you, I mean, my dad was a sports writer. You grew up around it. <clears throat> I'm sure that's why you wanted to be a major league player because you grew up around it. You know, I grew up around it, knew I was never going to be good enough to be a major league player. So, you know, this was an opportunity. And, and I used to sit in the back of the broadcast booth at spring training when my dad would take us down to Winter Haven, Florida, where the Red Sox trained at the time. And Ned Martin and Ken Coleman and the guys who were the announcers then, um, who were still announcing when I got to the Red Sox TV booth, um, you know, they were nice enough to let me sit in the back of the booth and watch. And I remember thinking then, I want to do this. So when I got to opening day in 1988, literally, you know, I, I was almost paralyzed for a couple of minutes thinking like, I actually have this job. So, uh, you know, it was a dream come true. It's really all that uh, I wanted to do when I was a kid. And that that kind of gave me the opportunity to do all these things on the network level. You know, I was really lucky. So much of it is just good fortune, right? ESPN's in Bristol, Connecticut. ESPN was kind of just, you know, it only been around a little bit when I started doing the Red Sox games. Well, the Red Sox games, because Connecticut's in New England, are on in Connecticut. So the people at ESPN would come home and watch the Red Sox game, and apparently a couple of them thought, he's pretty good. So that's how I got into ESPN. You know, if I was doing the Minnesota Twins games, those people probably wouldn't have seen me, and maybe I never would have had the opportunity at ESPN. So a lot of it is just the right place at the right time. How was that growing up? Your, your dad, Will McDonough, um, famous Boston Globe uh, sports writer. He did on-air football at NBC and CBS. Uh, your dad and Peter Gammons kind of were – were they the original? That Yeah, they were the first sports writer to – Yeah. They were, and it was by accident, really. You know, my dad didn't have any interest in being a TV person. And then uh, Brent Musburger on the old NFL Today, Ted Shaker, who was the executive producer – of CBS Sports, they invited my dad on to be a guest down in New York on a Sunday about, I don't remember what the topic was, and but Brent told me the story that my dad was sitting there and, you know, he was giving them all this other information about, you know, by the way, that quarterback's not going to play today. He's hurt, you know, blah, blah, blah. If that team loses, they're probably going to fire the coach. Blah, blah, blah. And Brent said, you know, this guy knows a lot. Maybe we should have him back. So, it kind of accidentally became a recurring thing. And then they made him, you know, the, the, really the first information man uh, in TV. And uh, over the years, I've had a lot, you know, Peter King and Adam Schefter and Chris Mortensen and guys like that tell me, you know, thank God for your dad, because, you know, he's the one who kind of opened the door for this. And, um, you know, my dad really only did it. I was the oldest of five. And that was right around when he was going on TV. I was in high school uh, and, you know, the first of five were about to go to college. So. Uh, sports writers didn't make a lot back then, so he, he really, he was very open. I say, I'm just doing this for the money. <laughs> I have no ego about thinking I'm good on TV. I really don't want to be on TV. It's nothing I ever really aspired for, and it happened by accident. But, you know, he opened the door for a lot of people, and uh, he was just a great guy. You know, it's, uh, that's the thing I'm proudest of. You know, he, he just, I still, my dad's been gone for 20 years now, and every single day, uh, I go somewhere and someone comes up and tells me a story about they ran into my dad, they played golf with my dad, and, and how nice he was, and some random act of kindness that he did for somebody, uh, which I heard a lot of those stories after he died. So 
it's a really cool thing to be able to say your dad is, you know, the finest man that you've ever known. And, and my dad was. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I remember teasing. We had Gammons on the program and teasing him. I said, Peter, you don't strike me as the guy that just goes from sports writer to throw you in the in the chair and you got to put some makeup on. Now you got to go on TV. And he was laughing about that. But it really was. Your dad and, and Peter were kind of pioneers from the sports writer turned TV personality entertainer. And, and Peter uh, King said that to me. He said, you know, what? If, if they tried it with your dad, it didn't work. Like He wasn't good at it. They might have said, you know what, we tried that. didn't work. Not a good idea. And who knows? Maybe that whole concept would have gone away. So I think the fact that my dad, guys like Peter, who were there at the beginning, too, were were good at it, you know, brought something to the table. And and now, as you know, I mean. Gave everybody else a chance. These guys make a ton of money. You know what I mean? Yeah. Shefty, Woj on our basketball coverage. I mean, these guys are valuable in in a lot of ways, you know, um, but. As much as anything, you know, they drive people to the websites and, you know, the other places where if you really want to get scoops, you know, these guys are, you know, back in my dad's day when he was breaking all kinds of big stories and that's what he was best known for. You know, he might know something at four o'clock in the afternoon. Brett Boone's going to announce his retirement tomorrow. I have a scoop. But it didn't come out until the paper came right, out. Right, right, right. The next morning, right. There wasn't Twitter. There wasn't all this other stuff. So websites and, you know, I remember thinking, well. That's this is like twelve hours till someone else gets my dad's scoop if they're smart enough to get it. So, you know, now if you have a scoop, you better tweet it out there in thirty seconds because somebody else is going to have it. And everybody yep. claims now to be first. You know, we had it up there a minute and twelve seconds before the athletic had it or whatever. So, right. And now everybody has to attribute, you know, on the bottom line or whatever. Right, right. They they say, they give credit. Reported by the right. athletic, like we. You know, it's so it's kind of silly, but. It's the world we live in. When we talk about family, and it's cool talk, hearing you talk about your dad like that, because, you know, my family, I'm very close with all of them. Gramps passed away uh, almost 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Big part of my life. Yeah. And and I still to this day, you know, I'll see older gentlemen in the game of baseball. And they'll, oh, you're grandpa, man. And I said, I know I got to, I got to spend 34 years with him. So that was, I feel fortunate now looking back on those times, but I remember coming up college minor leagues. And I just did an interview about this recently. And they, they talked about, you know, cause I'm 54 years old now being a third generation. That's just part of my life. And till the day I die, they're going to ask me, what is it like? And I understand that. And I've accepted it. When I was a kid, I thought it was cool. I was very proud of my father. I was very proud of my grandfather. But when I was trying to make it, I, I kind of started to resent it to a point. You know, I'd be in AAA and hitting 330, and I go to a new city, and the first question is, well, do you feel a lot of pressure to be the first third generation? And, and after a while, I said, I'm hitting 330. <laughs> I'm second in the league and hitting. Let's talk about that. And I don't care about my dad and my grandfather, even though I love them to death and respect them as much as anybody I, I could respect. Uh, it took me a time. It took me a couple of years in the big leagues before the question started to be about Brett and what he was doing. Now I look back on it. There, there was never any bad feelings. It was just kind of, man, quit talking about it. I, I don't care what my dad and my grandpa did. Did you have any of that when you were young coming up feeling that or was it? Oh yeah. All yeah. the time. You know, especially when I got the Red Sox TV job at a young age, you know, my dad was writing for the Globe. Uh, the headline in the Boston Herald 
which was a big competitor then, um, was uh, when they announced that I was going to be the TV play-by-play guy. <laughs> the headline was, where there's a will, there's a way. <laughs> oh, that's pretty good. That's, so, yeah, pretty cute. that's, nice that's cute. That's cute. Yeah, it was very cute. <laughs> um, you know, I wanted to say, you know, I've done 400 minor league baseball games, which is probably a lot more than a lot of guys who are broadcasting the major leagues uh, have done. You know, the nice thing, Jim Baker, who was the TV writer in the, at the Herald at the time, at that opening day game, you know, uh, the Alan Trammell. Alan Trammell wound up hitting a home run in extra innings off Lee Smith to win the game. And, and I actually learned, of, you know, you're always learning, right? And I remember uh, being in the post office, it might have been the next day, and uh, a guy recognized me. He said, are you the McDonough guy who did the game yesterday? I said, yes. He said, you did a good job. He said, but you were too excited when the other team hit the home run to take the lead in the 10th inning. And it was a good you know, it's, it's, you're on the local broadcast. I mean, obviously, right. it's a big play. You want to give it, you know, it's proper due. But, uh, you know, you don't really have to get super excited when it's the other team. And that was a really, you know, that has obviously is still stuck with me all these years later. So, yeah, I used to get that a lot. You know, he only got that job because of uh, his dad or whatever. And I think, you know, your, my dad probably helped open the door to Nesson. You know, when I started at Nesson doing the pregame show, as I mentioned, and, in 85 and doing uh, college hockey and some other college sports, they were on in 3,000 homes total. I mean, you don't have to go very far around where you live or I live to get 3,000 homes. They weren't all over New England like they are now. And for a while, there was some speculation that they, they might go out of business. So, you know, I think they were looking for young guys, who were women who would, you know, work for not very much money. And, you know, when you're coming right out of school, you just want that first opportunity because that's always the hardest one to get. But um, you know, hopefully now, you know, people think I've made my way on my own or not. You know, I think, I think, I Joe think, you, Buck, I, I think you might have. <laughs> yeah, I think Joe Buck's one of the great broadcasters of all time. You know, obviously Jack, uh, you know, helped him along the way. You, you know, we mentioned Todd Blackledge earlier. He's working with Noah Eagle now as Ian Eagle's son. Ian's one of the greats in our business and a great guy. Noah, I think, is 25 years old. He's terrific. You know, he's worthy of the opportunity. Maybe being Ian's son helped them get there faster or whatever. But, you know, these people don't want to, you know, Dan Berkery, who hired me to do the Red Sox games when I was 25, he said to me, I almost didn't hire you because he said, I don't really know your dad very well. He's certainly not my buddy or anything. And this is the most important thing on our station. It's the high, Red Sox baseball is the highest rated programming. It's the biggest revenue generator. We pay a lot of money, rights fees. I don't care whose kid you are. <laughs> like, this is important for my livelihood. You know, if I want to keep my job, this has to go well. So I'm not putting anybody on just because he's somebody's kid. So, but you know, that was the narrative. But you know, it's uh, I don't care. I love my dad, and uh, you know, <laughs> if people have a problem with the path to however I got where I got, they can have a problem with it. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash businessgoldcard few times in my especially in my uh professional career dad would come in and give me some advice he was right every time i i, I count it it's like four times he gave me at at forks in the road you know during my career 
he gave me advice. I took three of them. I didn't take one. He was right all four times. Biggest piece of advice Will McDonough gave gave you as your father. Oh, boy. Um, I, I think, you know, there's so much of it, you know, in the professional aspect of it and in real life. I think the most important thing is uh, because he was this way. I mean, he was the most true to himself person, right? He, I mean, he wrote the way he thought he should write. He didn't care if he ruffled feathers, but he always wanted to try to be fair, always worked super hard. I mean, I think the hard work and preparation part is, you know, he got all these scoops because he, he worked really hard at it and he cultivated relationships. He used to say, you know, like, it's okay if you're going to say something critical, but you know, you should say why. You shouldn't just be a bomb tosser. And, you, know, and you shouldn't right. say, you know, this guy stinks. I, you know, it's, and I would never say that anyway, you know, but I think if you're doing the game and it's obvious the fly ball should have been caught and it wasn't, you know, it doesn't do your own credibility any good. And it certainly doesn't serve the viewer. So, oh, you know, that was really a tough play when everybody watching is like, no, yeah. it you, you know, lose credibility. Yeah, you, you lose your credibility. And as a matter of fact, the beginning years when the uh, Yaki Foundation, this is Yaki on the team, and John Harrington was running the team. They, you know, people would say to me, "Do they have a problem with your candor?" You know, and I said, "No, um, they don't." And, and John Harrington said this to me himself. He said, "Because now, when you say something, you know, maybe we're taking a lot of grief from people about something, and you defend us, it has credibility because people know you're not afraid to say, well, they right. kind of messed up. That was a bad trade.'" Or, whatever they shouldn't have fired the manager or whatever so um you know I, I think smart ownership groups realize that you know if your announcers are allowed to be honest it really helps you unfortunately not every ownership group in sports understands that and there have been plenty of people who have been moved along because perhaps they were a little too candid so yeah it's part of it but uh you know my dad gave me so much great advice um really as i said about you know, professional life, but also just how to, how to conduct yourself, you know, mm -hmm. try to, try to be nice to people. <laughs> my dad used to say, I guess we're on a podcast that we can say this. My dad used to say, uh, it's the easiest thing in the world to be nice. It takes energy to be a prick. <laughs> yeah. No, it's yeah. true. Uh, yeah. And he's right. You know, so, um, it's, it's words to live by. Some of my, everybody assumes that, that my life was full of tutelage from my dad on how to hit and how to, he didn't teach me one thing about baseball. That was self-taught. That was repetition. What he taught me was how to be a pro when I got there and, and how to carry myself. I, that's the one thing as a little kid, you know, I, I saw a lot as a little kid, I grew up in clubhouses and I look back and I go, man, dad was a pro. You know, and those are the things that that help you not only as in your profession, but in life to be a man. And uh, right. Some of the great advice isn't, hey, Brett, you know, in that one, two count, what are you thinking? Yeah, that, that's that's root of that's elementary stuff. We all can break that down. But it it was the times where I got sent to the minor leagues early and I'm bitching and moaning. And my dad's on the other end, uh, just retired from from baseball going. Are you done? I go, what are you talking about? They're not treating me well, dad. He goes, well, as soon as you figure that you figure it out, that life ain't fair, you're going to be a lot better off, buddy. All you can <laughs> control is what you can control. So whether you should be sent down right now for the third time in your rookie year, it doesn't matter what you think. What matters is what you do about it. So I'd suggest going down and knocking the shit out of the baseball 
right. and make make them call you back up. Things like that, advice like that from my dad. When I'm just this out of control 22 year old kid thinking the world is just against me because Lou sent me down again. And my dad being that calm voice to say, okay, are you done being a baby? Okay. Who cares? Or, or, now, if you yell loud enough, are they going to unsend you down, Brett? And say, no. <laughs> you know, I remember on draft day, I was a fifth round pick and a bitch out there. They draft me in the fifth round. I'm a first round pick. Are you done, Brett? You think they're going to redo the draft and draft you in the first round now because you're not happy? So oh, there are teams that wish they took you in the first round. Yeah, but but that those are those are the things that when you mentioned your dad and telling him the the, the real life stories and, and and that advice, it hit it hits home with me because it wasn't about on the field stuff. It was about life stuff. And, yeah. and that's well, and I'm sure doing. you know you you talked about it. You know, being asked about it when you were on your way up and even after you arrived. The but I would think. Um, it's got to be really cool uh, for you, your dad, uh, your brother, and, and your granddad uh, while he was still with us. To, you know, I mean, that's you're one of the greatest families in the history of baseball. I mean, that's the reality. You know, you're doing things that people that haven't been done. You know, and you you're all you're all you you didn't just make it. You know, you were all performers at a high level. So. Uh, I, I would have to think that's something that uh, is really cool about your life experience, you know, and, and uh, it, it, it is cool. And I look and at it know and the way they were all held and are held in higher. You know, I, I've heard a, a lot of stories about your grandfather, who I never really had the pleasure of knowing. You know, I, I know your dad. As I said, your brother's a dear friend. I know you. You know, it's uh, it would be one great, you know, one thing if you all had made it, but you know, you weren't held in the regard that you are, you know, to, right. to be able to know that people think the world of your brother, your dad, your grandfather, you, you know, it's, that's gonna, I think be the best part of the whole thing. You know, I, we talk about my dad, you know, my goal every day, I have a little, uh, I have one of my dad's baseball cards. And when I go to do a game, I put it right on the monitor in front of me so that from time to time I'm looking at him because you know, the, the thing I want more than in anything in my life is to make him proud still. You know, he's up there watching. And then, you know, you, you start to feel like, oh, I'm about to say something that's stupid or schmucky or whatever. You know, I, I'm, I'm not because, you know, I owe it to that man to, uh, you know, be the kind of person and broadcaster that he would want me to be. So, you know, it's a tradition to uphold and um, you guys do it exceedingly well. Thank you. And yeah, it's, it's I love your brother. I mean, I really do, as you know. He, he's Arnie is he's 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 such a good kid. Smart, yeah. passionate as all get out. I laugh. You know, I watch him on TV and I crack up. People ask me about Aaron. I said when he goes on one of his tirades and is yeah. arguing with the umpire, he doesn't mean anything by it because you know him as a guy. He's such oh. a well, how his many first times thing, have you read his quote like the next day where he said, oh, I feel bad or I was right. I didn't he it. calls me and tells me he feels bad. And I know he does because yeah. I know Aaron goes out there. The last thing he wants to do is cuss. Right. He doesn't want any kids in the stands to see anything bad. He doesn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. But then the passion takes over. This last one when he was when he, when he was drawing lines. I pictured him and I've told it. Yeah. It's one of the great things, you know, as you know, too, and I don't know if you can do it like he can, but the, and you talk about growing up in the clubhouse that I'm a little more poised than him, Sean batting stances. And no, you know, I can't do that. The way people, he used to imitate the way I walk. We, we'd be walking into a stadium, you know, we were working with Rick Sutcliffe and all of a sudden 
you know, I, I don't have the greatest posture and kind of shuffle along. He'd start walking like me, and I'm like, is my posture really that bad? No, it's, uh, but I'm like, it must be because he's, he does the most perfect imitations of people I've ever seen in my life. That's what he's done. That's Aaron. He's done that yeah. his whole life. And, uh, you know, I just, I laugh. And, and he called me right after the recent one. And I just, I'm cracking up and he knows I'm laughing because that was Aaron in our childhood when we were playing two hand touch football on the road. And I said, it's not a first down, but he was going to argue to the death that it was. And that that's exactly how he'd come at me. So when I watch that on TV, I start laughing. I go, that's Aaron Boone when he was eight years old. He's the same yeah. kid. He's he super competitive. Play. I played golf with him many times. And, you know, he's uh, he's super competitive. And I think that's part of what makes somebody a great athlete, too. You know, it's uh, as I said, it's kind of part of I have two brothers who went into the, the you know, management side, uh, working for teams in uh, the NBA and the NFL. And I kind of envied them from time to time because there is the, the winning and losing and the scoreboard and the exhilaration of a huge win. And, you know, the losing sucks, but um, but it's still, you know, it's still an emotion where, you know, as I said, we get done with the game and it's like, all right, are we going to go have a beer? Are we going to get something to eat? Or are we just going home? Or, you know, that that's really about the only feeling that we have. So, right. uh, <laughs> Before I let you go, uh, you, you've been there for the big rivalry, New York-Boston. Uh, for me, when I was playing, even as a guy that wasn't a Red Sox or a Yankee ever, uh, we as players back in those days, we'd watch because it was Sunday Night Baseball, and we enjoyed that rivalry. Uh, American League East this year uh, isn't like that. We got Baltimore at the top, Tampa Bay. Uh, I think Toronto, I don't know, it's Toronto, Seattle, Texas, and Houston. There's four teams, there's three spots. But for, for the Boston and the Yankees really not being a factor, what have you seen from the from the American League East? And give me your crystal ball. How's it going to finish out? I think Tampa Bay's only two or three out. What yeah. What are you seeing from those ball clubs? Well, you know, Baltimore, They, I think that's, they're a great story, right? I mean, they were not very good for quite a while. And, uh, you know, to see them uh, doing what they're doing now, they deserve a lot of credit. And I think a lot of people thought, well, you know, last year they were pretty good, but maybe they'll go back down. You know, they actually, it's been exactly the opposite. As you know, they've, they've been even better. So I think they're a great story. Uh, you know, I think they'll probably hang in there. I mean, we, I remember the beginning here, everybody thought Tampa Bay may win 130 games <laughs> the way they were going. Right. You know, they were on this ridiculous pace. And uh, yeah, the Red Sox, you know, I, I think to be honest, Brett, the Red Sox, are, you know, about what they should be uh, based on the talent right. level. You know, they think they're a 500 team, a game or two over 500. And I'm not surprised by the Yankees. And I think if your brother winds up taking the fall, it's a joke. You know, to me, you know, we talked about the change in the game and speed and stealing bases. And, you know, they're they're just not, a, to me, a well-constructed team. You know, it's uh, so, you know, I don't know if he's going to take the blame for it or not, but I hope not. But. And he's made it, you talk about the Red Sox-Yankee rivalry, he's made it a lot harder for me because I never had a hard time, you know, uh, knowing which side of that I was on. And, uh, you know, it's when you, you know, when we're kids, like you described growing up around it, I grew up around it, you know, fans. I, I used to go to every Patriot home game in the crappy old stadium that had a bunch of different names, Schaefer Stadium, Sullivan Stadium. And the Patriots were terrible. Like young people today probably can't even believe that the Patriots, like in the early 1970s, one of the worst teams in the NFL. And I used to cry in the car on the way home 
you know, they'd be they'd lose to go to three and ten, and I'm like devastated that they just lost to the Miami Dolphins or whatever it is. So, um, but as you get older, you know, the fan part of you goes away, and it's really the relationships that you have, right? The um, um, and that's what I feel when I watch the Yankees. You know, I one of the great joys I've had those hundred and sixty some uh, broadcasters I've worked with is working with your brother, and he's a wonderful friend, and. I don't want to see him lose, you know, so yeah. it's, uh, you know, that's, you really, you become more a fan of the teams that you, you know, you know people who you care about, have a relationship with. So um, anyway, it's a long-winded answer, but uh, it's still a great rivalry. You know, I'd like to think these two teams aren't going to be down for long. You know, I, I, I think toward the end of the season here, we've seen some bright spots in that they've, both have some young players who look like they're going to be good. Um, and the Red Sox in particular, <clears throat> that's kind of been their model since Heim Bloom got here. You know, there's been a lot of speculation here. Well, they, the ownership brought him here because he came from Tampa Bay and they want the Tampa Bay way, which is give us a really good team that doesn't cost a lot of money to have it, um, which some people here are offended by thinking in a market like this, you shouldn't, you know, you should spend money. And they do spend money. But... You know, Brian Bayo, Tristan Casas, Rafaela just got here now. Uh, he's already kind of made a, a good impression. Jaron Durant had a really nice uh, comeback here after it looked like he kind of might have been overrated. He's not. It's too bad he got hurt. So, you know, I think Hein Bloom and them could say, you know what, this is what we're talking about. We have four or five players now who are going to be an important part of our future. So, uh, but this year, they, you know, they're a mediocre team, and and that's about what their record. As Bill Parcells used to say, "You are what your record says you are." Yep. Well, Sean McDonough, I appreciate you coming on the Boom Podcast. It's a lot of fun. It's good to catch up. And uh, well, I hope when you reflect, keep on doing this what one, you now, do. You think, keep you know, doing what you do. One. That was a good one, Sean. That was a good <laughs> one. Now keep doing what you do to your. I don't know how many how many games you got once the Boston season ends, but I know it's a lot. And uh, wish you all the best. We've got to catch up and play golf. It's been too long. You're uh, way too long. Yeah. And for all of you out there watching or listening to the Boone Podcast, I appreciate you tuning in. And we'll see you next time. 2400 Sports is an Odyssey company. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story. And one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.